Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. everyone. Welcome to Productize Podcast, where innovators, product creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire more people to build great product experiences. My name is Carolina Mcias, and I'll be your host for today. Today we have Ted Harrington, author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, and is also the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, a company of ethical hackers famous for being the first one to hack the iPhone. Hi, Ted. Welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Where are you doing this podcast from? Uh, Right now, I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm uh, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm I'm in Lisbon, but I I wish I'd never been to Los Angeles. It's on my list. (laughs) Uh, I've been to Lisbon, so we could do a little We need to switch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start by talking a bit about your background. You did your bachelor in psychology. How did you move from that to where you are today? Yeah, well, I didn't necessarily know it at the time when I was studying psychology that it would be so directly applicable to the profession that is security. But the reason that I uh, that I wanted to study psychology was I really um, I was and am still very fascinated by why people do what they do. Right. What are the motivations? Why do people make decisions? Including especially, why do people make the atypical decisions? Um, I was interested in abnormal behavior, criminal behavior, sociopaths, and things like that. And uh, you know, all these years later, that has actually really helped influence what it is that I do every day. Because what we need to do as security professionals, we need to understand how do attackers think, how do they operate, how do they break systems. And how do people in companies think and operate? And what are the sort of misconceptions that human beings have about the way that the world works? Because we need to address and undermine those misconceptions if we want to be successful in security. And really, uh, every we'll talk about this, I'm sure, throughout the course of today. But really, everything that the, my book is about and everything that ethical hacking is about is really about that. It's like, how do we think? Because if we can understand how the attacker thinks, then we can understand how to defend against them. Interesting. So you ended up applying what you learned in psychology into what you do today. Yeah. And I mean, studying psychology, I think studying most things that you'd study as an undergrad, the actual tactical, practical things that you learn, like the stuff you memorize for a quiz or a test, you you don't really apply those specific lessons in your life very much. You know, there's some fields where you you do, maybe um, if you're going to become a doctor or something like that. But really, I think what something studying liberal arts definitely does, you know, psychology being um, one type of liberal arts, is that it really helps you learn how to think and how to analyze situations and how to think critically. And those skills, I mean, those are transferable to really any field. Of course. And, you know, you were talking about your book, so I have to say, you know, congratulations for your success on it. Uh, What motivated to write it and to our community of product builders, what can they learn from it? Yeah, thanks. I, I was, you know, I wrote this book as something that I felt the world needed. And then to see it actually succeed commercially, you know, and to hit number one bestseller was 
you know, that was, you hope for stuff like that, but you never, you never count on it. So I was pretty happy to see that. But the reason that I wrote this book is, so just to give a little bit of context, you mentioned before that uh, I, I lead this company of ethical hackers and um, what we do, the problems that we solve for companies is what they're trying to understand is how do, uh, how are they going to get hacked, right? How is an attacker going to look at their software system and exploit it? And what should they do about it? So that's essentially what our, our business does. And the reason I mention that is not to like promote or, or plug our business or anything like that, but more to give you the context about sort of what my day-to-day interactions are. And every day I'm talking to people who are building products. Uh, and it ranges from, you know, in some cases, the CEO, uh, the VP of engineering, the chief information security officer, the head of development, you know, basically I'm interacting with the people who are responsible for not just building these products, but for building them in ways that are secure. Uh, And security is usually not their core job, uh, or at least it's not all of their job. It's just one of the many responsibilities they have. And I noticed two things were happening. The first thing that I noticed was that I kept having the same conversations over and over and over again. And it didn't matter the size or maturity of the company. It didn't matter how far along the product was in its you know, uh, development or uh, process of maturity. It didn't matter geographic location. It didn't matter industry sector. Everyone kept, ha- I kept having these same conversations. Everyone has these same common problems. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I really organized them into maybe 10 or so different problems that everybody who builds software systems has uh, from a security standpoint. And I thought that was interesting once I noticed that, that, you know, these themes that kept coming up over and over and over and over and over again. But it was the second thing that I noticed that really kicked my butt into gear and said, you have to write this book. This isn't like you should or you want to write this. You must. You are required by the universe to write this book. And that was when I started thinking about, well, what are the conventional solutions to these problems that everybody has? How do people talk about solving these problems? And that was really the lightning bolt because what I noticed was that the conventional solutions, the way that people talk about solving these common security problems were pretty much wrong. And so think about that. You know, if we put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's building a product, they, uh, they're trying to change the world through technology in some way. And that could be as grand as it, or as it sounds, or it could be as micro as there's some you know, micro problem. But whatever it is, they're trying to solve a problem through technology. And they realize that security is important part of that mission. And so then they realize, well, they maybe have some challenges. They have some problems about how they're going to actually solve those security problems. And so they go out and try to solve the problem. And the answer they get is wrong. And that was when I said, I can't stand for that. That that can't exist anymore. I know how to solve those problems. And so basically, I wrote this book organized around these common problems. And how do we go and solve them? And so that's really what the book is. It identifies, hey, here's the way that a lot of people think. And here's what's Here's why that's wrong. Uh, here's what to replace it with instead. And here's what to go do. Okay, interesting. And for example, if imagine I'm an entrepreneur and I'm building my own app. For the first time, I have no experience. What should be my first steps to secure my product? And even besides that, what should I do to build this cybersecurity security first culture in my company? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, I empathize with that situation, right? You know, you're, uh, whether you're a first time entrepreneur or not, starting something is 
a, an exercise in resource constraints, right? You don't have enough money. You don't have time. You don't have enough people. You have to see if the market's going to respond positively to this thing. And all of these pressures, ultimately what they do to an entrepreneur is they effectively deprioritize security, right? So you look at this and you're like, well, I can't invest in security until I know whether the market's going to accept this. I don't even know if I need to pivot yet. I don't have any money. I don't have any people. I don't have any, I don't have any, anything. I just have an idea and I'm going to try to bring that idea to, to fruition. And I totally empathize with how difficult of a situation that is. But the reality is that what most people do in reaction to those resource constraints is they say, well, security could come later. I'll think about security later. And there's a few problems with that. And one of those problems is that it is going to be very, 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 very painful to deal with security later. So let me use, let me use a metaphor. So most mornings I have a smoothie for breakfast, right? And it's filled with all of these, uh, you know, nutritious ingredients, right? You have your spinach and your pea protein and water, of course, you got bananas, you got, you know, all kinds of things that are good and healthy for you. So when I finish the smoothie and I pour it into my glass, I have two ways that I can clean the blender. And cleaning the blender is sort of, the, in this metaphor, is, is analogous to, um, to, to securing your solution. So the two ways I can do it are I can do it now or I can do it later. So most people, myself included, when it comes to cleaning the blender, will do it later, right? I'll say, oh, I've got a million things I got to go do today. So I'm going to put it in the sink and I'll come back later to clean it. But what winds up happening when I come back later is all those nutritious ingredients, they've really hardened in the blender. So what do I have to do? I have to soak the blender. Then I have to disassemble it. I have to scrub it, reassemble it. And it's just kind of a pain in the butt. So that's what it's like to, to do things later. And security is very similar. You build a product and then you realize, oh, I have to actually think about security now. Well, you're going to have to actually rebuild significant components of that system in order to actually make the security work right. So that's what it's like to do it later. But what if I do it now? So I could pour out the smoothie uh, from the blender into my glass. I can put just a little bit of soap in it, a little bit of water, run the thing for like 10 seconds, and it literally cleans itself. No scrubbing, no disassembly. It's super easy, but I have to do it in the moment. And that is the decision that entrepreneurs have to make when they're building their product. Are you willing to take uh, to pause for a beat and to say, can I think about security right now? Just like, can I think about cleaning this blender right now? Because I could clean it right now very easily, but I have to think about doing that now. Or I could not clean it now and accept the pain that comes later. And when we, when we put some numbers to this sort of whimsical way to talk about security, which is like, it's stupid, you're just talking about a blender. But like, nevertheless, that's, that's really how we think about it is, do we want to do, do it the easy way or the hard way? And the easy way requires we take action now. The hard way requires we don't take action now, but we're gonna see a lot of pain later. And I wanted to quantify what that means. And so one of the things that we did was we looked back at, it was about 10 years worth of our own data of uh, security assessments that we performed for companies. And we sort of grouped them into whether they fit into the uh, did it now or did it later group. And the, the metrics are staggering. For a software system, uh, a, a security vulnerability that's introduced, say, in the design phase, 
when it's remedied in the design phase, so you're thinking about security while you're designing the solution, that issue that is identified, let's say it takes X, like one X is whatever, whatever X is, is the unit of time it takes to fix that issue. Well, that same issue, instead of it being identified in the design phase, if it's identified after deployment, which is when most people think about security, that same issue, instead of X, it's like 25X. It's about 25 times the amount of effort that it takes to fix an issue. So let's say it took, you know, 10 hours to remedy that problem. You're talking about 250 person hours to make the same change. And that is outstanding. That's like staggering when you think about how painful that is. So this is a really long way of, and, and, and I have to explain the whole case because most people don't understand this issue. Um, but it's a really long way of saying that what you want to do if you're a first-time entrepreneur and you want to think about how do you build security into your solution, you want to start thinking about security at the beginning. So as you're uh, in the requirements phase, you're talking about, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Who are you solving it for? What is, what's the user base for this? Uh, that's when you want to start thinking about building what's called your threat model. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, threat modeling throughout the course if, if we want or offline. I can talk about that with people. But the point is, as you're in that requirements phase, that influences how you design the thing. And that's also when you want to be thinking about, well, what are the things we want to protect? Who are we worried about attacking the system? What are the different attack surfaces? Because by thinking about security in each of those stages, it makes sure it helps make sure that you're making the right security decisions at the time that those decisions are made rather than later when it's going to be exponentially more painful for you to deal with it. And do you feel that most companies that come to you are aware of, of that situation and come in a beginning phase or they come already in that pain in the ass phase that? <laughs> yeah, almost almost nobody comes to us with when, when the blender is still ready to be wet. So ready. Uh, no, every, everybody comes later. And I get it. I mean, I, I totally understand it because the scenario that I painted before, right, where people, um, they're under these intense constraints, these intense pressures, and and also, to be quite frank, no one told them, right? There, there's just not enough, um, I guess, evangelism from the security community or of the evangelism that exists. We're not making enough noise or we're not doing it loud enough to where this this is this isn't has not permeated the general consciousness for most people that, hey, I should be thinking about security as early as I possibly can for self-serving reasons, because it will make my life easier. It will be less expensive. It will be more effective. It will avoid that real pain in the butt work later. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, most people do come to us after the solution's already built. But that's okay too, because here's the reality. It's never too soon to think about security, but it's never too late either. Like, even though it's better if you do it earlier, it's better for you because it's less expensive, it's more effective. Uh, that doesn't mean if you wait till a product's released that, well, we, we already lost the battle. We shouldn't even worry about it. No, that, that's, you should get into it because you're going to have a next release. You can uh, revise the issues that might exist. So it, it's very, very common that people come with built solutions already. And, you know, talking about security, you know, we're becoming increasingly more digital dependent with our files saved in our drives, pictures in the cloud, digital calendars. We now with remote work and social media and so on, how secure are we with what we save and send online? And what misconceptions do you see around this? So there's 
there's two ways we can think about that question. So one is the the consumer, those of us as individuals, uh, and, and by consumer, I don't mean just like a consumer of things that have nothing to do with your profession, but individual end users is one way to think about it. Uh, but the other way to think about it is the companies who build those solutions. Um, so us as individuals, there, there are things that we can and should do in terms of the way that we use these tools. But I think the really the onus, the, the burden of all of this is on the organizations who build the tools. Because what we need to be doing as we are building these solutions is we need to realize that uh, users, they behave in certain ways for better or for worse. I think a lot of people like to blame users and say, oh, users are lazy. And it's like, well, no, you didn't make the solution simple enough. We're, of course, we want the easiest path. That's the way that human beings are wired. Biologically, that's what we're supposed to do. That's a survival instinct. Don't fight it. Like, make a simpler solution. But users are not inherently going to operate in the most secure way. So what we need to do as we build solutions is we need to be think, thinking about that. We need to be understanding, well, how do attackers operate? And how do attackers take advantage of the way that systems are broken? And uh, often those things are very they're very unexpected. So for, for example, I can share with you an example of a, uh, an application, a software system that we recently did a project uh, on. And there was an issue where there's a technique that attackers will use. It's called chaining exploits. And so to chain exploits is essentially to take two issues that on their own might be of a certain severity and then combine them and make it you know, way, way worse. And so in this case, here's a solution that was built in a certain way. And the first issue that we identified is what's called information leakage. Now, information leakage is when a system gives up information that it shouldn't. It's not directly exploitable. It's not that big of a deal on its own, but you don't really want it to happen. So in this case, what it meant was that any user of the system could identify any other user of the system. Now, again, that's not an issue that's directly exploitable, but you don't really want that to happen. The second issue is what's called uh, broken authorization. So what that means is that the authorization, right, the permission to do something, the way that that system allowed those permissions was not good, was broken. And so in this case, what it meant was that if you wanted to change your credentials, your, your combination of username and password, if you want to change those things, like anytime you want to change your credentials, you had to supply information. But unlike the way that it should work, the way that it worked, was very bad. And the information you had to supply was your user identifier. Now, every user knows their own user identifier and doesn't know other users. So on its surface, that seems fine. But when you pair it with the information leakage, what it means is that any user of the system can get any other user's identifier. And then once they have the user identifier, they can change the credentials. So that means any user could change the credentials for every single user of the system. And that means they can take over the entire system, every single account, including the admin accounts. And so the reason I tell this story, besides the fact that these are the kinds of very real, very significant issues that exist, is that these are the kinds of things that organizations who, who build these systems, as, as you said, you know, we're so dependent, our lives are just so intertwined with the digital reality, the world that we live in. We have to understand that these are the kinds of things that attackers do. And companies, far too often, they sort of fall into this complacency trap where they're like, oh, we, you know, I found this list of best practices and I do that best practices. 
And that's a good start, but it's not sufficient because what we need to do is we need to actually understand how attackers think and we need to understand how users operate with systems in order to be able to better secure them. And now you're talking a bit about your cases and your experience and you would have, you've helped hundreds of companies fix so many security vulnerabilities such as Google, Amazon, Netflix, and so on. Can you tell us about one of the most challenging hackings you had to do or memorable? <laughs> A lot of them have, def have definitely been memorable. Um, yeah, so we, well, I can tell you about the iPhone. I mean, you were asking about that and Apple and that's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a interesting story and, but it's an old story. And so what's crazy to me is that, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007 and here we are. 14 years later, and people still ask me about it like every day. And it, it is a pretty cool story that has some really interesting takeaways from it. And so when the iPhone came out, you know, I mean, talk about the world changing. The world was like, the world was changing with the introduction of the iPhone. And uh, like anybody, you know, we wanted to get our hands on one. But unlike most other people, we wanted to hack it. <laughs> we wanted to hack it um, and we wanted to be first. And, but we didn't have any sort of advantage. And a lot of other researchers also wanted to be first. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to create an advantage for ourselves. And what we did was we, we came up with a hypothesis or a theory that in the move from the desktop operating system to a mobile operating system, that Apple might, in its pressure to meet deadlines, might actually carry over some issues that are known to exist or are similar from the desktop operating system to the mobile operating system. And there's a really interesting uh, takeaway of, from that for anyone building systems, which is to say, hey, you know Apple, those that company with those super smart people and tons of money and resources, they're also up against deadline pressure. And so we basically, we leveraged this hypothesis to come up with a few attack scenarios, which essentially said, hey, if If in fact this issue gets ported over, here's how we would actually run an attack sequence in order to, you know, uh, attack the phone. And sure enough, one of those attack sequences proved to be valid. And so when the phone came out, you know, we didn't get early access to a device. Apple wouldn't tell us what the device was going to be like. We couldn't even, like, we had to wait in line. Like everybody, we had to like in the tent for like everybody else to get an iPhone. Um, but sure enough, you know, later that day started poking around on it. And within, uh, um, within a day or two, we actually had found an exploitable buffer overflow vulnerability. And as a result, what that meant was that, uh, we could take over full administrative control of the device. So we could, uh, turn on the microphone, turn on the camera, send and receive text messages, uh, take pictures, delete pictures, you know, basically anything that you could do, we could do. And, And we proved concepts uh, from our lab, which is, uh, was in Baltimore, which is just south of uh, Washington, D.C., or just north of Washington, D.C. We were uh, able to take over the phone of a New York Times reporter sitting in his desk, you know, 200 miles away in Manhattan, in New York. And it was pretty eye-popping, you know, being able to do that and to, and to be first was, was pretty cool. And the first company, there are other researchers around that time, individual or independent researchers who were doing similar things. Um, and it made pretty big news, you know, it was on like every major newspaper. And what's crazy to me is, you know, 14 years later, many of those principles are the same, right? Attackers will, 
they will evaluate attack scenarios. They will, uh, based on assumptions that the developers might have made, and that's that's really one of the that's the Achilles heel of any product is what did the developer assume the users would or wouldn't do? And I mean, it's it's almost on a monthly occurrence. I find myself in a boardroom where someone says some version of, oh, no one would think to do that. And I'm like, well, we just did and just asked you about it. So somebody will think about this. And so, yeah, so that, that's the story about the iPhone. Obviously, there, there's tons more, but the, I, think, I think what everyone can take away from this, and the point is not actually to shame Apple in any way because they responded really well and they, they fixed the issue, I, I want to say within like 48 hours or something. Um, but the point is, here's a massive company with tremendous resources, but they have similar problems that everybody else has. But we should act the way that they acted in response to the issue, which was fix it. Like, don't ignore it. Fix it right away. And that's that's another area that a lot of companies struggle with is they're like, well, I don't have time. I don't have cycles. You know, it's a pretty common thing people say. Um, so vulnerabilities exist. The, the question is, do we find them and do we fix them? Okay. And, you know, talking about the iPhone, you know, what it's heard is that iPhone is a very strong software against cyber attacks uh, comparing to other brands or softwares. Do you think, do you agree with this? Do you think that it's true to today? And if yes, is it because of their cybersecurity culture? Is it because of developers? What do you think that happens that is so special for iPhone? Well, iPhone definitely has that reputation for two reasons. One, because they have a cult following. <laughs> I mean, I'm an Apple fanboy myself. Who am I kidding? Uh, but like, there's just this passion that you know for for uh, Apple products, and so you know, people are evangelists for it and. Uh, for a long time, the uh, viruses and um, the things that were being created to attack systems really focused on uh, were not focused on Apple's operating systems because they had such a small share of the market that an attacker wants to focus their energy where they can have the biggest payoff. So they're going to focus on the other operating systems that dominate the market. But when it comes to the uh, iPhone itself, the, so there's a, obviously a few different things there. The iPhone is a hard, piece of hardware. There's the operating system, which is iOS. Uh, and then there are the applications themselves that either Apple or third parties are developing. And Apple does have a slight security advantage when it comes to the operating system. And that advantage is that they have this sort of sandboxed idea where um, unless, as long as the phone isn't what's called jailbroken, um, so the way the phone is intended to come, apps can't interact with each other. And that's actually a really intelligent security design because what it means is that if my, you know, my running app gets compromised, it, it doesn't mean that the attacker who, you know, hacked that app can now get access to my banking application that exists on the same phone. They're intentionally set up so they can't interact with each other. And Android OS doesn't work that way. Android OS, you can get to what's called root where you can actually access um, uh, all the other apps. Now with an iPhone, with an iOS, if you jailbreak it, you can take it out of that mode and then, you know, then it's essentially the same thing. But that is a slight um, advantage that Apple definitely has. But the, I think when it comes to mobile devices, 
I don't know if I would go so far as to say that Apple devices are inherently so much better than other devices, but I think they're all getting really good or they're getting better now. Um, but ultimately, um, there continue to be issues. You know, mobile apps obviously are, are plagued with issues all the time. Um, but that is why Apple has that reputation because of the, the combination of the fanboys and the uh, the sandbox. Yeah, I'm a fan myself. I have to say, <laughs> you know, when talking about talking a bit about cyber attacks, this isn't something new. You know, starting in the 1980s with cyber espionage during the Cold War, and even thinking about 2020 with the huge cyber attack against Amazon Web Services, we've been vulnerable to these kind of attacks and aware of the need of protection. But do you think that something has changed over the time? And what are the challenges related to it? Well, the only constant is change. And the attackers are constantly adapting, they're constantly evolving. And those of us on the defender side, the victims, or people like ourselves who are trying to help uh, prevent being victimized, the I do not think that the rate of adaptation is rapid enough. Um, the, the defender side aren't able in the way the world works today, aren't able to keep up with the pace at which the attackers are evolving, primarily because of what the business case requires. And I see this all the time, right? Where you look at someone whose job, say a chief information security officer in a larger company, or maybe in a smaller startup, it's the CEO, but somebody who's responsible for this, the security of the application uh, or the software system, they have to make the case Right? They have to go to others in the company and say, here's why we should invest. Here's how much we should invest. Here's how we're going to measure success. But what's, what's happening on the other side of the equation? Right? The attackers, they're not sitting in some boardroom saying, here's why. You know, they're not making a case about whether or not they're actually attacking. They're attacking. And I think the analogy for how we can think about why that's a problem is imagine, imagine any sporting event. And... Okay, so let's say you have a football match. And on one, on one side, you have a team who, you know, all these footballers have been practicing together all year, all summer. They're relentlessly improving their skills. They have the best uh, players they can get their hands on. They're running drill after drill after drill. And they show up to the game ready to play. And on the other side, they don't even have a goalie because they're trying to decide well, what's the justification for a goalie? Like, what if they don't shoot the ball on net? Do we actually need a goaltender? And it's like, guys, what are we doing? Like, we're in the game. We're never going to win that game if we're not moving as fast as the attackers are. And so um, so the short answer is, yes, a, a tremendous amount has changed. The attackers have evolved. Attack techniques have evolved. The technology itself has evolved. And what we all need to do is we need to constantly recognize that the way we defend today is going to be a little different than tomorrow. Yet at the same time, many of the fundamental principles about how we actually defend don't change. And that's sort of, I think, the, the good news out of this, which is that how you defend from purely a principle standpoint, not from a, how the tech works, but in terms of principles, the, princi the secure design principles, which are what? lead to a system that's resilient against attack. Those principles are the same largely today as they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so that's the good news is we just have to understand those principles and then adhere to them. Okay. And, you know, when you say that cyber attacks have been evolving, 
has the technology to kind of protect ourselves from those attacks have been evolving as well and at the same pace or is it becoming harder and harder to protect ourselves oh yeah the, the technology has has definitely evolved uh there's so much innovation happening in security products it's, it's actually really exciting um, there's a lot of snake oil too in security products. I mean, you go to any security conference and walk around the, ex the exposition floor and you will hear some nonsense. You'll hear some claims that you're like, that's, I want to believe that, but I can't believe that. And, um, but you know, you take the charlatans out of it, the, the people who are really actually driving meaningful change. Yeah. There's, there's really amazing advancements happening. Um, and you can just look at the fact that, you know, certain attack types that were maybe viable you know, 10 years ago, they're not viable today because products have figured out how to automate the defense um, against that. And so I think that's, that's actually uh, a really good sign. Um, but we need to keep pushing. And one of the things that we need to recognize, and this is something that people often overlook or don't understand, is that the attacks that are happening today that are the the most significant ones, we might not even know about them yet. We might not know they're underway. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. There's an attack technique. It's called request smuggling. Uh, it impacts the way that a web app processes traffic. And without going into too many of the details on it, though, I'd you know, be happy to, to anybody who's building a web app and is like, wait, am I going to be subject to that type of issue? What's interesting about request smuggling is uh, where an attacker can exploit it, it enables an attacker to actually sneak in a malicious request right alongside a legitimate one, and it will be served as two requests. It'll be uh, it'll be received and treated as if it's one, but then um, the two things will be actually served up. And what what is interesting about this is that the timeline from when this attack technique was first viable, like when the technology first existed that enabled this type of attack. From that moment until it was first documented in security literature, that was something, that was about 16 years. So about 16 years, this attack technique existed and no one knew about it. And then you fast forward from that moment until today, and that's another about 16 years. And people still don't really know about it. And so it's a really good example of where here's this attack technique that an attacker can violate a system in the most profound ways and people didn't know about it for a really long time. And so that's one of the things we have to think about is that even the best security tool out there, I mean, whatever the problem is we're trying to solve, we go find the best security product that does that, the best. It still won't solve every problem that exists today, even though a lot of them might claim that. And what we have to realize, this is why this, this idea that's been coming up several times today, of we have to really understand how attackers think, we have to think like them, is that we have to look at systems manually, we have to abuse these systems in ways that only a human who is sort of using that problem-solving mindset who can connect dots, we need that in addition to our collection of tools. And I mean, frankly, that's why a profession like mine, that's why ethical hacking even exists, because there's no way we're ever going to be able to automate the human out of the security problem. And, um, and so that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind as we think about innovation is that, yes, uh, security innovation, uh, innovation in security products is happening in a, an amazing way. I'm really excited about it, but it will never solve the whole problem. Okay. So I have to ask, is it something that excites you or scares you? The innovation part? No, <laughs> the part that 
there's still so many things that we don't know that we cannot protect ourselves beforehand. As that case, it only 16 years later, we were able to know the kind of attack, the attack. Oh, I find that stuff very inspiring. Uh, the, okay. uh, the entire profession of ethical hacking is to explore the unknown, is to explore the unexpected, is to expect the unexpected, right? And um, so, for example, the title of my book is Hackable. And the reason I titled it Hackable was because uh, it's, it's happening less today, but it still happens. But it, happened, it used to happen a lot where people would say things like, oh, this system is unhackable. And first of all, you tell somebody with a you know, hacker mindset that you can't do something, they will absolutely say challenge accepted. I will, go, I will go see if in fact it can't be done. And so I was thinking about, well, what's the opposite of unhackable? And so, you know, of course the name becomes hackable. And so I'm very excited. I mean, I'm not excited by the fact that companies are probably getting victimized right now and we don't know it. I mean, that, who would feel good? You have to be a psychopath to feel good about that. I certainly don't feel good about knowing that attacks are underway and people are actively getting compromised right now. But I feel inspired by the challenge of, uh, you know, finding the unknown and uh, discovering new techniques. And my belief is that the whole purpose of security, if, there, if you were to distill security to a single word, it's better. The whole point is to be better. We, better. we need to be better today than we were yesterday. And we must be better tomorrow than we are today because security is never done. You're never going to arrive at that finish line where it's like, okay, security's over, you know, check, did it. Uh, and, but you are going to arrive at a point where you can say, well, I'm, I'm pushing to be better. It's like, it, it's like fitness in that you're never done being fit, right? You're never like, and I'm now in perfect shape. I have to do nothing else. It's every day. Do you go to the gym? Do you go for a run? Do you lift weights? Do you eat healthy? Do you uh, consider your sugar intake? And that's really what security is like, is how are we relentlessly pushing forward? And so when I think about things like attacks that might be underway that we've never heard of before, that to me is, uh, that's exciting and inspiring and uh, is why I do what I do. Good. And, you know, you mentioned that you guys are ethical hackers. So can you explain a bit better what is an ethical hacker? What's the line that differentiates an ethical hacker to a non-ethical hacker? Yeah, great question. Okay, so first let's answer what a hacker is because that is a term that gets pretty widely abused uh, by, the, by the media primarily, but also in the security community too. So oftentimes hacker is uh, used to describe an evil person associated with wrongdoing or whatever. And that's not entirely true because really what a hacker is, is a hacker is somebody who is a problem solver. And what they're doing is they're looking at a system and they're saying, all right, it's supposed to work this way. It's supposed to do X. Well, can I make it do Y? Can I make it do something else that it's not supposed to do? And that fundamentally, that's what a hacker does is they look at something and say, can it do something different? Can I, you know, can I create an alternative use or whatever? That's neither good nor bad. That just, that just is. The fork in the road, the line of differentiation comes to motivation. So if the motivation is to achieve some sort of personal benefit that comes at the cost of some other person or organization or 
you're indifferent to the ramifications to another group or organization, or you want to harm uh, the other organization or group, uh, that is where you would be defined as an attacker. But if the motivation is to find those issues and in order to be able to fix them, in order to be able to say, okay, well, here's how the system could be broken, but here's how you fix it so it can't happen anymore. That is where you'd be defined as an ethical hacker. And we even joke sometimes about like, why do we need the word ethical in front of it? You know, it's like, you know, a hacker is just, it just is, it's neither good nor bad. Uh, you know, you don't say ethical plumber, right? A plumber is just a plumber, but I, I've, I've, grown to be okay with it because I think it does make it really, really clear. Are we talking about the good type or the bad type? And so an ethical hacker is the good type. Our mission is to, you know, find those vulnerabilities that exist in a software system, advise the company how to fix it and make sure that they did actually fix it correctly so that the attacker can't now come exploit that system. Okay. Now I see clearly, and I think everyone sees it, that you're very passionate about your job, which is great. So my last question is, besides that, what other passions or projects did you, do you have that you would like to share with us? I mean, I guess my, uh, my, my personal, I guess how I spend my time is I'm big into running. Uh, I noticed that one of the things about myself, I like doing hard things. Security is by definition, a very hard thing. And I think running is too. And, um, Running for me is very contemplative and I solve a lot of our company's problems <laughs> like out on a run. I'm like, oh, that's how we unravel that problem. Um, that's where you get your ideas, not in the shower. That's Yeah. <laughs> I, get some, I get some ideas too that I write them down and once the endorphins go down, I'm like, what was I thinking? That's a terrible idea. <laughs> but at least I have the ideas and it's a, you know, it's a good creative outlet. And I think that any leader uh, of anything, you don't have to be a security leader. You need that way to de-stress and change your mindset a little bit, change your body chemistry. You need to sweat every day. And running for me is you get all those things, but also a way to compete against yourself. And just like security is about getting better, running is about getting better. And you can measure yourself. Like, how did I perform at this distance in the last race? Can I shave a few seconds off? Can I shave a few more seconds off? Can I have a better stride? How do I tweak my equipment in order to be able to do this better? And so to me, there's sort of like this, uh, this, uh, the way that my professional life, personal life, all these things, they weave into each other and they, each of them make each other better. And uh, that I'd, to anyone who's trying to build a company of any kind, I would definitely recommend that you find that other outlet that helps you take care of your body in ways that also help you think about how to develop your business. And that's, you're really lucky if you can find the combination of those two. Thank you, Ted, so much for sharing such great insights. Uh, can you please tell our audience how can they get in touch with you, get a copy of your book and all that good stuff? Yeah, the, the easiest would just be to go to tedharrington.com. Uh, if you want to find where to follow me on social media, you want to learn more about the book, you want to reach out to me about maybe you need help with securing your product with security testing or consulting or, or whatever. Uh, maybe you need a speaker for your upcoming event, you know, any of these things. However I can help you, I want to be a resource to you. Uh, so just go to tedharrington.com and uh, I'm very, very accessible and you know, happy to help. Great. Well, thank you again, Ted. Have a great rest of the week and stay safe. Thank you. Bye.